you'll turn with me uh, this morning to Isaiah chapter 49. Um, as the, the Lord, uh, in His good providence, uh, has set before me that I must preach this morning, I, I prayed to Him and said, Lord, I have no idea uh, what we might tackle. When all of the Scriptures, you know, this used to happen in seminary, they'd give you a, a, an assignment to preach a sermon in a semester, and all of a sudden it's actually the hardest thing to do because you're like, but the whole word's before me. Can't you just assign something? In many ways, I believe God has assigned for us this morning Isaiah 49. Uh, tonight, we're beginning the book of Daniel. And so this passage fits in with what's going on in the book of Daniel. From Isaiah 40 to the end of the book, Isaiah's prophesying the coming exile into Babylon. In fact, in 39, we see that Hezekiah is told by Isaiah because of his sin that some of his own sons would be dragged off to Babylon and some of the treasures of the temple would be taken with him. And that's where we find ourselves in the opening of Daniel chapter 1. Those are the sons that have been dragged off and so have gone the, the treasures of the temple. And you can imagine if you hear something like that as the people of God in Isaiah 39. The doom, the dread that would come over you. But Isaiah 40, the first thing God says to His people through Isaiah is comfort. This is coming, but comfort my people. And so, as he unpacks that, the rest of Isaiah, he has several songs in there. We call them the servant songs. Isaiah 42 is the first servant song in which we hear of this servant that is going to be sent into the world. We know Him as Christ Jesus. This first servant that comes in 42. Uh, he knows, Isaiah expresses, the plight of His people. He knows it so intimately. And it's there that we find that He will not, uh, he will not crush a reed and he not quench a wick that is just faintly glowing. This servant who comes, comes to bring comfort to his people so that when we arrive at the second of the servant songs in Isaiah 49, he offers us even more detail about who this servant will be, what he will be to his people. What a comfort then. You can imagine this was for a people who were in exile in Babylon. This morning you're like, what? you know, it's 2023. What does that have to do with me in Nashville, Tennessee? A people in Babylon. Well, listen, Revelation picks up that language of Babylon to say it wasn't just Israel that's in Babylon. You're all in Babylon. We'll dig into that a little deeper tonight. So here God speaks a comfort over us. In fact, in 49, He changes from who He's speaking to in 48. He speaks to the house of Jacob in 48 and 49. It says He speaks to us. The coastlands, those who are afar. In 2023, this message is for us that the servant has come. And now we'll see how that servant does serve us. Let me pray before we read God's Word. Our gracious God, we thank You for what You set before us 
in Your Word this morning. It's perfect. It's without error. And it is to be a comfort and a balm to our souls, Lord, when we cry out, where does my help come from? You show us, O God, in Your Word. It comes from You. It comes from Your Son, the servant that was sent. We pray then, Jesus, be known in our midst. Be our comfort and our balm and our hope for salvation. Wake us up. Wake us up to our salvation. To Your Word. If we're drowsy this morning, give us ears to hear, Lord. If our ears are stopped up and our hearts are cold stone, would You strike us? Would You aim the arrow in the sword of Your Word to strike our hearts, Lord, that it might become new life, that You might raise us up? So, Lord, we say Your Spirit... Go before us. Be in the reading of this Word. It is powerful and effective. Be in the preaching of the Gospel. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let me read the first seven verses of chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in His quiver. He hid me away. And He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring back Jacob, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, the One deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is God's Word for His people. Amen? Amen. This morning, we might ask the question, as Israel might have asked the question, Judah, as they're taken away into Babylonian captivity, where does my help come from? This should be the question on the heart of every sinner. We'll consider three points from our passage today as it points us directly to Christ. Uh, uh, Spoiler alert, the servant here being pictured is Christ Jesus. And so we're going to spend our time looking and drawing out these truths about Christ Jesus, our Savior. So let us see these three things. One, the preparation of the ministry of Christ. Two, the work of Christ, and three, the result of Christ's work. Let's turn first to the preparation of the ministry of Christ. Really, verses 1-3. through 
I was um, thinking about uh, the, the, the opening words here, listen to me. There was a, a, a man who found himself in a situation in 2022 down in Florida that no one wants to find themselves in. He was in the air with his buddy who was a pilot. And the pilot became unconscious and the man could not wake him up. And so you can imagine the desperate pleas as this man called to the tower. And you can imagine you didn't need to convince the man in the passenger seat of his condition and his issue and his problem. And so what a great comfort it was that the tower spoke back to him and said, listen to me. Listen to my every word and I will tell you how to come back safely. That's how Isaiah 49 begins. It says, listen to me. A plea to listen up, to hear the plea comes from the voice of a servant who is addressing all those who are far off. That's us, brothers and sisters, this morning. Often hear it said, I want to hear God speak to me. Oh, if He would just speak to me the way He spoke to Isaiah, the way He spoke uh, to all those people we hear that, that had the great pleasure of hearing God's voice erupt from the sky. He speaks to you this morning. In Isaiah 49, He says, listen to me. So that this is the very voice of the servant of God speaking to His people. What is He calling to you when He says, listen to Me? He calls you to the very words of life. Listen that you might live. What is our condition? What is God calling us out from? What are our feelings this morning concerning, uh, concerning our condition? Our condition of sin? Our condition of our guilt? Our condition of feeling like God's far off? Well, He says, listen to Me. Me? You might say, who's so far off, could God ever reach me? How does verse 1 open up? He speaks to those that are far off. To those that are afar. Can you go too far that His voice cannot reach you? No, that's not what it says here. He's called you this morning to good news. Just as this would have been good news to those in exile, He calls you this morning to the good news of the Gospel that He has come to set captives free. You are called to listen to the good news concerning His Son, the servant, which is laid before your very eyes this morning. Of which we see in the rest of verse 1. The Lord has sent His servant and look how He has equipped Him as a servant to save us. God makes ready His warrior Son to save those who are afar. Even before He was born, He had a, a special calling upon Him, a task that has been predetermined that He would bring back those who were far off. It's obscured a little bit here. We don't get His name. We just get that the servant says, from the womb, the body of my mother, he named my name. It's obscure and that it says that he has these weapons, this sword, and he's like a polished arrow, but it says that the Lord has hid him away. It's only obscured in Isaiah though. 
But we know that this is the Messiah and His work that is laid before us. And Jesus has come uh, as it lays before us here that He has been well equipped for the task that He was called to do. We're not immediately told His name, but we would be 700 years later. As we see another story about the womb, as this says here, that um, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name as we come to Matthew 1, in which we find an angel speaking peace to Mary, who now finds herself pregnant before she is married to the one she's betrothed to, that the Holy Spirit has done something in her, that He has placed within her the Son of the living God, the One who will be called Emmanuel, that means God is with us, the One to whom He says, Mary, you will have a Son and His name will be Jesus. What does the name mean? He tells her that God will save His people from their sins. So the work of the servant would be one of salvation and he would have the weapons and be the weapon of salvation. But note in verse 2, even as he is the weapon, even as it was hidden and obscure, uh, that we get a revelation of what he will do. His mouth will be, it says, a sharp sword And he will be like a polished arrow hidden in God's quiver for a time is coming when God is literally going to draw back His bow with the weapon of His Son, the Son who will speak a word, and the Son who will be like a sharpened arrow that will strike for a purpose in the salvation of His people. What does it look like when God draws back His bow and when the sword of His mouth is released? Of course, we know it at the cross, don't we? When Christ speaks, when it says He made His mouth like a sharp sword, when Christ speaks a word, and in a moment, the enemy is undone. Christ, as He hung upon the cross, cries out, it is finished. A sharp sword has struck and the enemy who has ruled and reigned, as it would seem, over the earth, who has held men and women in captivity. Christ says, it is done. The sword has fallen. The Word was spoken. It is finished. Oh, how exiles would like to hear that good word. The sinners this morning, how you hear a good word. The sword has struck. The word has been spoken. And everything necessary for your uh, salvation has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. Yes and amen, right? The enemy's reign over the people was undone in a moment. His people would be established. And Christ has been like that sharpened arrow that would be let loose defeating the enemy. God's weapons never fail. And nor does the mission on which He has sent His servant to accomplish. Verse 3 shows us that this prophecy is spoken to Israel who is in exile 
because of her sin. Israel is a name we see there that has carried with it a connotation uh, really of unfaithfulness to God. We, we, we've read it, right? We've, we've preached through the book of Judges, this downward spiral. We've preached through the book of Exodus in which we see, Israel, when are you going to live up to the name God has placed upon you? You're an unfaithful people, a stiff-necked people. And here we see in verse um, 5 that the name that he receives is Israel. Oh, sorry, verse 3. You are my servant Israel in whom I will be uh, glorified. Israel who had no comfort because of her unfaithfulness now receives a sign. A better Israel has arisen. A faithful Israel. The son who was born is the Israel. The faithfulness that He has towards His God. He is the fulfillment of the covenant. God promised Israel He would keep them and He keeps that covenant in Christ and He will hold you as tight as He holds His own Son. Verse 3, God was glorified in Jesus as the true Israel and in His obedience. And there is nowhere else we can go for our salvation. You say, who will fight for me? Who is mighty to save? And God says plainly to us here, see my servant, born of a woman equipped to bring this salvation. And God says to Jesus in verse 3, you are my servant. I love that he speaks this, this, this ownership over, over him. You ask the question, what does it mean to be in Israel? How are we related to this people? What does it mean to be a part of Israel? And here it is uh, uh, to look to the true Israel, to see Christ as the one whom it was always speaking about as the chosen one, the son, the faithful one. To be in Israel is to look to Christ, to have our salvation, and to have Him say over us as He says over Christ, you are mine. What good news for us this morning. Oh, hear and listen as Isaiah calls us to. Listen to Him who calls us to be his people, to rest in His salvation that He has set for us in this servant in Christ Jesus. Really, the first three verses of uh, Isaiah 49 are just an Old Testament version of Philippians 2. Listen to what Philippians 2 says as we see the ministry of Christ in these first three verses. It says, Jesus who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, that He let go of His high position, that He was born as we are born. He, he humbled Himself, you see, and He was born, of, uh, of, um, born from the womb as we are. He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See how He comes to identify with us and to feel our burdens. And Philippians goes on to say, but 
being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, He highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. A name that's no longer obscured as it was in Isaiah 49. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the glory of God the Father. You see, He's taken us through all of verse 1-3 through and shows us that glory, the humiliation, and then the exaltation of Christ. This was the preparation set before Christ in His ministry that He was called to and equipped for. Now our second point, the work of Christ. That's verses 4-6. through It says, But I said I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring back Jacob, and that Israel might be gathered to Him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And He says it's, it's too light a thing that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, and My salvation may reach to the end of the, of the world. The work that Christ was called to was not an easy road. We get a glimpse here in verse 4 of the, of the humanness of Christ. If you think about Christ's earthly ministry, He was spent and He labored that He would gather with the sick. He'd touch the leper. He had a ministry to the weak. That He raised the dead. That He ate with sinners and drank at the well with a woman who was rejected by all others. That He was announced His coming into Jerusalem with hosannas. Throngs of people gathered to hear Him speak. But then as He arrived in the garden, what was left? It could be said from a, a worldly perspective. That there was not much to His ministry that He was left with nothing. Who was around Him then? Where were the crowds? Where were His friends that He camped with and He traveled with and He ate with and ministered with? They've already fled. Where was the man, Peter, who promised, Lord, I will never deny You or leave You? Who that night, that very night, forsook Him three times. Jesus was utterly alone at the end. That's what verse 4 means. When you hear the servants cry, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. Jesus, in the end, was alone. But verse 4 is just a small glimpse of the humanness that Christ took on Himself. A man who would thirst as we thirst or feel forsakenness as we feel forsaken. Uh, 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 one who has experienced everything that we experience. One who has felt the taunt of enemies around him. And yet in all this, we have this servant's perspective. He tells us how he felt as if it was all nothing and vanity. And yet he holds out to us what true faith looks like and what true hope looks like. He told us the secret of His faith here. Look at the last part of verse 4. 
His mission and His work was always to this end. I know how it looks and I know how it feels, but He says, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Jesus submitted Himself to the will of the Lord and His mission and His work and He knew the course that God had set Him upon and He committed Himself to that end. That's why He was able to pray in the garden. Not my will be done, but Your own. Knowing that it was the will of the Lord to crush Him, to abandon Him, and forsake Him. Not because He's a mean God, but He did so for the sake of us. Oh, to see the servant at work for the sake of us, that He experienced those things. And you see the the reward, this recompense, the reward that is uh, Jesus' hope, the thing that this servant looks towards is our reward. Our reward is wrapped up in what He receives. His reward, His payment would be greater. He would receive not only the reward of His people, but the reward of a Father who was well pleased. Verse 5 unpacks for us what that reward looks like. He says, You formed me for this. You set me on a mission for this reason, to bring back Your people. And You made me to bring back Jacob and gather him once again to reestablish what was broken, what was lost when this sinful people was carted off away and taken taken by the enemy. He says, oh, what it would have meant to those listening ears that God was... Once again, Isaiah is telling him, God was once again going to gather in His people. I mean, isn't that the, the narrative of all of Scripture? When you go back all the way to the garden of Adam and Eve were who cast out, right? That He didn't forsake them. That He was going to do something to redeem this people. When you go to those that are in Egypt, A people that God knows and hears their cries. He says in Exodus 3 at the burning bush that that He hears the cries of His people and He will be the God who will respond and send a deliverer. And here are these people. Off in Babylon. What kind of God will He be towards us? The kind of God that responds and saves and gathers His people. And it wasn't merely that that was in the scope of Isaiah. It's much larger and it's much greater and it's much more beautiful than this. And that Isaiah could even say, you know, would it have been too small, too light of a thing that I should bring back the tribes of Jacob and preserve Israel? Oh yes, it's, it's too light. You're thinking too small. I'm going to do something much more magnificent. Not something much more greater with my servant. I'm going to search out the whole earth where all the captives are. Those who are afar. Us this morning. That the servant would come and purchase and boy, it would look like folly as everything looked like uh, it wasn't working up until the cross. Even at His death, the disciples are found in a room going, what are we supposed to do now? He's dead. 
Oh, how victorious this servant is. That indeed he will bring back the tribes of Jacob. It seems like a small thing. 40,000 might return from Babylon to Israel. Oh, he does something much larger and is still doing it in our day that he is gathering in from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's too light a thing for us to limit the scope of his work. It goes out over all the earth and he says, I will make you as a light for the nations. This is the servant that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Isn't that glorious? That Jesus might say in John 8, as He takes on the servant, I am the light of the world. Come out of darkness. Come to Me. That's the work of the servant for His people. He goes and He finds us. It's glorious, isn't it? Verse 6 is really using that resurrection language. He says, I raised up the tribes of Jacob. Raised them up from bondage and misery. Raised up from the judgment of their sin. This is what the servant does for us. That he, he raises us up out of the mire of our sin and death. He raises us up spiritually as surely as the Son of God walked out of the garden tomb. This light of the nations calls you to listen to this good word. Oh, you who walk in darkness, is there light? You who are feeling the hopelessness of your situation, Jesus knows how you felt. He felt it even as He approached the garden and felt utterly abandoned and alone. You who say, I'm too far for God to find me. You see, hear, the servant who goes out over all the earth to claim His prize, and He will snatch it from the hands of the victor, and He will lay claim over all this world of His people. Judah will see this in her time as a precursor to what would take place at Jesus' resurrection. Verse 6, He will raise up Jacob from the ashes. We, we covered it in a podcast recently in Ezekiel. He would raise up those bones in the valley of the dry, bo- uh, valley of the dry bones and, and give them flesh and life and breathe His Spirit into them. And what does He do for His people? Acts 1, what is the power of this servant as it goes out into the world? He tells His disciples in 1.8, I'm sending you out into the world to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world the Gospel will go forth. light spreads. This is the message we have, by the way, to the world. It's no weak thing to speak of this servant and to say, here is life. Here is light. What God sends out into the world will not fail. This is the Messiah set before us. And this is the only message to a desperate and a dying world. 
So we have seen the ministry displayed as he has gone out to put away the enemy, and we have seen his work as it goes out to the ends of the earth. Let us lastly see the result of Christ's works. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. I think this last part's stunning. We see two statements together that don't seem that, 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 that seem to contradict each other. How could this servant be humiliated and also exalted? What's with this sudden transition? Oh, what a mystery is the work of God, the Redeemer of Israel, whom God would send, will not receive the kind of reception worthy of his status. To be doubtful of his character, see here that he wasn't rejected because he was a sinner. God calls him his holy one. And he came to his nation as the holy one, and they wanted nothing to do with him. They despised the very salvation that God had promised him through the prophet Isaiah. And here Isaiah gives us a taste of what is still to come in prophecy for this servant. This humiliation. That he was not merely humiliated because he was born in human nature. He was humiliated in what he also received. And it's just chapters later that Isaiah gives us another song to really draw out what it means to be um, uh, deeply despised and abhorred by a nation. When he takes up the song of the servant of Psalm 50, or Isaiah 53, it says, Here set before you was a servant who had no majesty and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and they did not esteem him. Nonetheless, this servant would bear their griefs and carry their sorrows. I mean, just to pause for a minute. Think of the sorrows and the plight of those in exile. And here we see a, a servant willing to come and to bear all of that. What of those in exile who felt abandoned and despised by their masters? The servant knows what that feels like. Here is the one that would bear that for them. Here is the one who knew how they felt and He would show love towards them. And how could it be made even worse? How was He received? They abhorred Him. They hated Him. Isaiah 53 goes on to tell us that they abhorred Him and hated Him so much that they pierced Him for our transgressions. And they crushed Him for our iniquities. That He received our chastisement. And another great mystery by that 
our peace was won. And the servant would be sent to this kind of treatment by his own people. But it is the way, is it not, in which the Lord Jesus would reach the nations. What a great mystery that on this one would fall the chastisement, the abhorring that we would deserve for our own sin. He would receive it that we might be free from it. This is the kind of work of the servant that he would set free captives, not just to some master like Babylon, but captives to the grave and to sin and to Satan. He has come to set us free. Amen! For God was pleased to submit His Son to this humiliation so that He could raise Him up to exaltation. The last part of verse 7, the kind of exaltation that nations will see and believe that He could be raised and resurrected from humiliation and seated in exaltation. Is this not what He does for the sinner? Oh, how humiliating it is to confess our sins every Sunday. Every day, I hope. <laughs> but here we have a servant who was raised up and all those that are found in Him are raised up. For we come to the fact that kings will one day bow before Him. We're actually going to see that tonight, or not tonight, but in a couple weeks. And uh, Daniel, the ruler of Babylon, bows down before this God that's being spoken of. This servant will stand at the end and all will bow down to him. Brothers and sisters, he faced this humiliation for you. He bore your shame, not His shame. He is the Holy One. He bore your shame upon Himself. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. He took that upon Himself. I ask you this morning, why do you carry it? Why would you carry that burden upon yourself? You have a servant who will take it upon himself. Who was humiliated for the very purpose to take your sin. Do you not see that your Savior will bear it for you? Why do you look anywhere else for hope? It's all here in Isaiah 49. It's the beautiful Gospel. It's the only hope for you. I opened with, oh, where does your hope come from? Is it not this? The last part of verse 7, that the Lord is faithful. That the Holy One of Israel will come and work a great salvation for His people. What, did, what God did for His own Son in raising Him up from death will do the same for all who look upon Him. You will be saved. This is your hour. <laughs> That's how I felt, by the way, as I approached today. This is your hour, brother. <laughs> you didn't ask for it. This is your hour this morning. 
I call you to listen and to hear and to see this servant that is set before you. Look no longer. Walk no longer. Put your faith and trust in Him alone that you might be saved. It was the work He sent to accomplish. And He will take you and raise you up and exalt you and seat you in heavenly places as we learned in Ephesians 1 or 2. This is your hour. Look upon the Savior as He is presented in this passage. Amen? Let's pray.